Hey, Matt. What's that music? <laughs> I recognise that. Yeah, you may well recognise it. That is the music for Treasure Island Dizzy. Mmm, mm, bringing back some memories. I, I can smell the nostalgia, <laughs> literally. It's still left over in the hairs of my nostrils. Right, and I know, Jem, you, you, you're a sucker for that bouncy... Oh, yeah, uh, I was loving it. It's so well. fun and yeah. happy. Oh, man, um, this is, of, of course, another episode of the Arc Digital How to Make a Video Game Podcast Breaker. Um, we're back. This is Matt Galaxy uh, Walker, the audio person. To my left, we have... Jem, Crowbar, Crow. And then over, way over there on uh, Red One. Hello. Hello, Mike. Yeah, Mike Daw. Mike, Mike Daw. No, I, uh, don't, I don't want one of your nicknames. <laughs> you, you've already got one. Just Daw, which Mike, is the Mike best Dorr. the best surname ever for an audio person. Bang it out the door. <laughs> I'm a producer. That's what I do. It's got multiple layers. Yeah. Um, now, this for me, Mike, especially Mike, yeah. this feels like a bit of a, um, a DVD feature, extra features, special kind of episode. Right, right? right. This is a special bonus guest bonus special episode why because we've got with us today everyone the oliver twins Oliver and andrew oliver that's right you can actually hear them behind us well they're in the yeah. other room but you can hear them mumbling away with it in a meeting yeah, so apologize in advance but also enjoy the like hubbub sounds of Oric digital this is what it's like to be here no it's a good point because you're absolutely right gem there is an, a, a special sort of buzz going around the office yeah. today for this this very reason um why why are these guys so so important mike i mean if you're talking about british video game pioneers these two are right up there yeah. uh, you know like uh so these these chaps started making video games in the early 80s now they're video game consultants and they've done nothing but make video games for since i was uh you know a, a wee lad mm. um they are i you know legends uh, yeah in, yeah in a way they started in their like to say. 15 like that's so cool to right. be making games at that age when it wasn't as accessible as it is now i'm still mm. impressed when you get young people making games these days but back then it was like so much right. harder yeah. to do you didn't well, have the same and thing. it wasn't even a career back yeah. then you know so you know how hard it is i imagine explaining to to uh, older relatives you yeah. work in marketing whatever yeah. imagine when there wasn't even a career and yeah. they're going I'm going to go and do this you mm. know that that's that, that's incredibly brave yeah uh, super brave like the, the the power of foresight that those guys seemingly had just to go well no this is my purpose this is what I do this is the thing I want to develop and in 30 years time I'm going to be talking to some very hip people on a podcast about it <laughs> in the year 2020 so that kind it's of, all been leading up to this oh, moment in their entire this, career really this, I this think is for a, them is a career high I think so yeah or the, the, a career low I mean we don't know yet we don't know yet <laughs> <laughs> um, but before we get to the, the, the meat of the episode, what have you been playing, Mike? What's going on? Uh, you know me, uh, I've been playing some weird stuff. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you care to elaborate on that or should we keep it private? Uh, not really. I'll chuck a couple of names out there. I've been playing Space Mouse. I don't know what, what that is. And I've been Space playing Mouse. Cosmic Snake. That sounds good. I never know what games you're playing, but they always sound really fun. <laughs> they, they, they sound a lot better than they I are. I swear to God, you made those two names up. Are they on your... Uh, Arcade cabinet? No, no. Well, you know, I have been. I've been on the arcade cabinet. I've been playing a game that you'd actually quite like. It's called Saint Dragon. Oh, how do you with dragon? Yeah, you're a big metal dragon flying around, blasting. Sounds stuff. great. Yeah, no, that's that's it. 
Awesome. What about you guys, Jim? What about you, Jim? I have been indulging in hidden object games this week. (laughs) They're not great, but I love them. (laughs) Hidden Um, object games. Yeah, so they're like these games. Interestingly, they're sort of like one of the few games I think made and aimed at older women. So like mums, I think that's kind of mid 40s, mid 50s. And uh, yeah, little puzzles that are always really pretty, nice music, like lots of hidden objects and then just little terrible storyline. Just played one called Psycho Train that was absolutely <laughs> mental. Like your kid, your daughter gets kidnapped by this man called the Train Master. So you're chasing him across these like universes with like trains and stuff in. And right. It's all kind of like nightmarish and like weird train hellscapes. It's very strange. Oh, <laughs> it's gosh. completely weird. And you you solved a mystery and chased this person through the power of having a little look. Yeah, yeah, through <laughs> the power of like, you have to like solve a mosaic. So then this window smashes and behind it is a special box with some scissors. And now you can use the scissors to cut the strings on another box that might have like a key in right. which opens another box, which has a piece of a ladder, which you need to climb up to get into another box. It's very strange. I sounds can't recommend of, them, but I love them. Sounds so. kind of fun. I think just on those um, those titles alone, I think I've just seen inside both of your minds. <laughs> well, I've, I've got nothing that comes even close to that. I mean, but I am really, really happy, and I have to apologise, Jem. Now, you know how you were saying uh, we've mentioned in in, in other episodes about um, Horizon Zero Dawn being a great game, great protagonist, all a great story. It is great, but it has it's been knocked from my current focus. Um, I find myself reinvesting my life and times and, and I don't know, human existence into Tom Clancy Wildlands at the moment. And the reason I say that is because I, I'm, I was a real late bloomer to online gaming and uh, another dad friend of mine, we've been playing this co-op and it's just brilliant. Like last night, only last night, at time of recording, last night, we undertook one of the toughest missions and it took us ages to do it. It took us like two hours, well, I see two hours. That's a long time in, in dad gaming. Um, <laughs> it took us quite a few attempts. But when we did it, oh my gosh, we felt like pros. Oh, that's like, really I, nice. I snuck in. I, yeah. had to, I had to liaison with Sam Fisher. We all know about the goggles, Sam yeah, Fisher yeah. Splinter Cell. We had to liaison with him. So the fact that he was there as well was just amazing. I then had to defend him whilst he was hacking. Sorry, spoiler alert for the mission. <laughs> I had to defend him whilst I was doing that, holding off the bad guys. Uh, Barry, hey Barry. He then, he stole a helicopter, flew up into the air, took out some of the SAM missile sites and some of their other helicopters because we knew they would come after us afterwards. And then the plan was, once we were then free to go, once Sam had finished the hack, we'd jump into the helicopter and just fly off into the distance. That was the plan. It was all going according to plan until Barry's helicopter got shot down. And we were like, oh, the hack's complete. What do we do? We've got no exfil. <laughs> so we just legged it into the forest and got, le- and got chased by helicopters, eventually managed to get a car, made our way up into the mountains. There was a, a gunfight ensued on the mountains. Oh my gosh, it was just straight out of a Michael Bay film. <laughs> and at the end of it, we literally just in sync just went, <sighs> end of uh, rants about Wildlands. We need to get onto the meat of this episode, Mike. Is there anything you want to add? Uh, no, other than I, I kind of can't wait. This is going to be rad. So, our guests today, we have Philip and Andrew Oliver, uh, the Oliver Twins as they're known. Um, Philip and his brother Andrew have been making video games since the early 80s with such smash hits under their belts as the Dizzy Games and many of Codemasters Simulator series of titles. Uh, in fact, at one point during the 1980s, it was reported that 7% of all UK game sales were attributable to the Oliver Twins. 
Um, after this early success, they went on to found such legendary British studios such as Blitz Games and Radiant Worlds. And today, they run the video game consultancy, The Game Dragons. Gentlemen, it is a pleasure Hi. to have you on the Oric Digital podcast. How the devil are you both? Very well, thank you. Absolutely, Matt. Thank you very much. Oh, I'll correct that 7%. <laughs> that was, at one point, that was about um, 87. It actually went as high as 15% at 15%. one point. Oh, dog. So we actually kept um, a And chart. we have proof. We actually kept a, uh, a, a chart from, I think it's about 91, where we went back and actually calculated it. Um, and then we actually got to just over 15%. But that was a, a very good chart. That's why we kept it. So now we, we've learned that for photographs and whatnot, you guys stand in a particular position so that people can tell you apart, right? Yeah. Okay. Now we've been thinking how on earth to do that deck. for a podcast. Outside of just hard panning someone left and hard panning someone right, we're not going to do that. But we're, we're trying to understand how you guys go about differentiating your tastes across games, uh, movies and, and other media like do you have all the same interests or is there a difference we there? are very similar and it's probably helped us kind of work very closely together because all of our backgrounds and aspirations and inspirations have all come from the same background so actually we were finding that we agree with everything when we were designing <laughs> all these early games <laughs> it was just like wow what about a bit of this game and a bit of that game and the amount of shortcut talking that we were doing because we'd both just seen Rambo or Die Hard and we were like, yeah, we'd just make yeah. a small reference and you instantly know it. We'd played exactly the same games. And so actually it made developing games very agreeable um, and it optimized <laughs> all the conversations. And it was actually the shocker when we started employing other people where you just go like, throw out a reference um, and they go, what? And then you have to try and explain <laughs> it and you go, I've completely lost my third now because I had to explain the reference of this movie reference or the game reference that I've made. Now I have to explain it and they're still going, I don't get it. And you go, you know, like the gameplay of I Carry Warriors or something. And they go, right. I've never even heard of the game. And you go, oh, for God's sake. And then you're trying to talk about and explain a little tiny nuance of that game that you really like. So not only did it slow their design down, they then didn't agree with you either. Imagine that. Right. And it's like, oh, for goodness <laughs> sake. Um, but, but we also found that when we were sort of coding, so we were sat next to each other in the early days just coding, and our code just interlinked really easily without us having to do massive planning. But the minute we start employing people, everybody's <laughs> got completely different coding styles. And and then you actually end up having a discussion about, could you just code the same way as us? And they go, no, could you just code the same way as us? It's like, look, we're employing you. No, no, but we're doing more coding and more hours because you're trying to run a business and do the design as well. It's like, could you? Could we just all play nicely, please? <laughs> <laughs> there should have been some kind of orientation process. You know, you should have made a well, more to be, actually, to be Rambo, fair. To be Robocop. fair, the, the first couple of years when it actually came to employing people, we actually found that the type of people that we employed weren't necessarily the right people. I won't kind of obviously name <laughs> any names or anything, but it actually found it very hard to sort of get everybody to agree to everything. And actually, one of the sort of turning points in about '94, this is when we've set Blitz Games up is we actually went through a different interviewing process and we actually were find, trying to find people that were very like-minded, deliberately so, that, that they would actually... You're trying to build teams. You're trying yeah. to build a team that all work nicely together yeah. and won't be disagreeable, but actually do have the same sort of aspirations so that when we say we want to make a kid's game or something, they're okay with that. They go, no, I only came here for hardcore shooters. So after a while, you do employ very yeah. like-minded people, but we kind of did that deliberately and actually we... It worked very well. But I mean, the company that cohesion built. is super important, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. it's I all mean, about teamwork. We were like hardcore geeks. We spent um, probably six or seven years just in front of 
computers just writing our own games and then to turn into managers we clearly had never had management training and we accept that <laughs> and we lost and burnt through a lot of very good people and they went and cash <laughs> it was expensive time yes um but we learned those lessons the difficult way um and it's not the fault of those individuals necessarily it's the fault of how we managed them and some of them probably were skilled um but there's a, um, a side effect that happened and that is that people would always say why don't you write all original games and you've just started working for people like disney and dreamworks and you're just making like chicken run and things um and actually we tried to do some original games like uh glover if you remember glover. i remember glover and when you have a team of creative six, six to eight creative people and you want to not be dictatorial and you want to be inclusive inclusive and creative and, and empower them you have brainstorm meetings and everyone everyone's idea counts and everyone's ideas are brilliant and must be incorporated and it's like but everyone has different directions whereas we'd been used to like roughly going in the same direction it became an absolute nightmare to get people working in the same direction and it's not that people's ideas were bad ideas but they didn't necessarily fit with the vision and there was no deadline in your own original product mm. and who sets the art style because you now got three different artists and they each have a slightly different take on it whereas actually one of the things is so we slipped into doing titles for Disney and stuff not only because they give you the money up front which is always good when you're running a business right. and you've lost a lot of money um, to get someone to pay you up front is because so many things are set in stone it's like you have an amount of money which if you divide up by the number of months before the film launches and therefore you have to get the game out it's like well that dictates the team size of 12 people You've got the art style absolutely nailed down. You have some initial meetings with the flow and the plot of the film. And you say, what is the game style and the gameplay? Mm -hmm. And what are the different levels and what are the different enemies? So many things are set in stone that you can actually um, make a game fairly easily because you have all these creative people and you have brainstorms of what to fit in the game. But fundamentally, it's quite easy to say that doesn't fit. The box in which everything has to fit is very well defined. Yeah, yeah. So one of the boxes that you tried to fill um, was, in fact, your first published game was, uh, it was a type-in listing. Roadrunner. That's right. Um, you're going to ask me to t tell you exactly what the code is. Starting from were. 10. Absolutely. Yeah, like please go 10. No, uh, no, no, but, no but first of all, can you explain to uh, uh, some of our listeners what a type-in listing oh, my was? Goodness. Now, I, I remember. Well, <laughs> it's it's crazy. Uh, it, it was better than tape, uh, punch card. Um, so basically, a lot of the computers in the early days obviously had keyboards and basic built in so it meant that when you turned the computer on you just had a flashing cursor it's like Ooh. what do you want to do now a lot of people very very quickly worked out that what they want to do is go and play a game and they go and buy a cassette or copy a cassette but we won't talk about that <laughs> and then they, they they basically uh type the instructions um load quotes whatever or run uh, quote whatever and it basically just loads loads the tape and runs the game but all the computers came with manuals um, with kind of trying to teach you basic, which was excellent. And I have to say, I really, really wish that computers, when you turned them on these days, PCs, they, they actually had that nice, friendly way of actually making, being creative yourself and making your own programs. But that it Some doesn't tutorial. I mean, I'm just playing Dreams last night. It's like wonderful, wonderful tutorial that takes you through things and yeah. absolutely blinding piece of software but anyway but back, back to those to, eight big games which, which were a little bit more rudimentary uh, it did mean that you could basically in these manuals they had like little demo things of just kind of i don't know line 10 print hello world line 20 go to 10 and it would just print on the screen hello world a million times and the more advanced ones it would bounce a ball which was the cursor around the screen uh, um so 
the idea of doing a typing listing was that um, it was almost the easiest uh, thing that we could do. We we only we were at school. We were um, I don't know year nine. I think yeah, you would 30, call it these thirteen days. or fourteen. Thirteen or fourteen. Um, we wanted to play games. We wanted to make games, and we thought the typing listings was kind of the lowest hanging fruit. Really, it's like, can we get a typing listing printed into a magazine? So, so we deliberately in the listing that we did, we tried to make it as short as possible, as efficient as possible, Brilliant. and actually quite try to be quite surprising in actually how much it delivered. And as a result. The, the game was Roadrunner, and it was actually a procedurally generated road, so there was no random. data to type it. Type. We called it random back in those days. You call it procedurally generated yeah. these days. Um, we So we basically did that so that people didn't have to type data in. To get it published, we had to send it on sort of in the post to the publisher. So we had it on the computer screen, and we got our mum to type it on a typewriter, right. Olivetti typewriter, <laughs> and send it off as a listing. But she typed it, and then we said, well, we've made some like mistakes, because we tried to type it back in. Um, so we sort of like redlined it with a biro. And then um, years later, we found somebody who said, oh, he said, I actually had to accept one of your listings. He said, I got this interesting listing through. And he said, it's all right. He said, it's Thought it was okay, he says, but the only way he could work it out was to actually type it in. So he spent he spent an hour or so typing it all in and ran it and thought that's okay. Um, and then he had had a cassette tape and, and a printer, so he just printed it out and they published it. Now, gentlemen, being somewhat of a Ghostbusters fan myself, I can't have you in the podcast studio and not ask you about your time on Ghostbusters Two specifically the port to the spectrum. We so. were fans of the original film and there was an original yeah. game through Activision that did phenomenally well. Uh, we weren't massive fans of that particular game, but years later we heard that there was a uh, film being made and we had done a project for Activision called In Incredible Shrinking Sphere, uh, which we had done a very good job of um, making that game. So Activision sort of said, would you be interested in, in writing a game for the new Ghostbusters film? We was like, oh wow, that, that would be a like a dream come true because we loved that movie um and there's a sequel so it was uh it started off with yeah well you'll have like eight months i think to make the game um i think i think it should be said that it was done via force field force field was, an, was another small development company that actually lived they were had an office quite close to where we were and they were the ones that brought us both the opportunity for iss and the opportunity for Ghostbusters 2. Um, it didn't hurt that we were well known by Activision, but actually our interface wasn't directly with Activision. It was actually through Forcefield. Um, and this was a time where we'd already been writing several games for Codemasters, but we never actually worked at Codemasters. We just worked from home and sent them to Codemasters and things were going well. But then when you get offered something like this, we're going, oh, we're going to do that. Most of our games at Codemasters have been a month to six weeks, and they, they go, "It's going to be a tight time frame because we've got like eight months." And we were like, "We can do, it. we can do that." I think we actually wrote, we wrote um, helicopter, gunship, and fantasy world at the same time. But um, Forcefield designed the game and wrote the... ST and Amiga version. And the Commodore 64, and they wanted us to port it. Um, we looked at it, and they said, well, it's going to be our design, but you've got to copy it onto those computers. We immediately said, oh, my God, you've picked a scrolling game. It's like, do you have to have... Um, and in, in those days, it was going to go out as a premium product, and when you've only got 32K of memory or something, it's like, how are you going 34K? to... 34K? Yeah. Don't okay. give up that 2K. <laughs> okay. Jeez. 48K spectrum when you take away the screen RAM and... It's 34K. 34K it. of usable RAM. That's not got too technical, eh? Right. <laughs> Anyhow, um, but they 
they said, well, we've designed the game. We just want you to effectively port it. Um, and and we were like, oh, my God, you've gone for scrolling, but um, we'll go with the scrolling. And they said, we're going to do four different levels, but it's four different loads so that they can be entirely different games. And we were like, okay, that sounds like quite a lot of work, but I guess we go for it. But it does mean it's quite awkward because you have to play the first level. When you get through the first level, you then have to load the other side of the cassette, and it's two cassettes right. in the box, which did make it an absolute pain in the ass. It was two cassettes, two whole cassettes. Was there much of a collaboration be between you guys and and the actual studio? Like, Absolutely was there any conversation there? Nothing. At all? Yeah, we, <laughs> nothing. They, they, yeah, we saw a photocopy of a script. We've done loads of Hollywood movies, like Bad Boys Two, mm. uh, The Mummy Returns, Reservoir Dogs, Little oh, Stitch, yeah. Chicken Run. We've not really met any of these people. Yeah. Um, and to be honest, your you, your product, your game, let's be honest, it's games. They come through a licensing department, and when the person who's licensing it out, they're licensing beach towels and lunch boxes in the same division that licenses the games. And you have as much access to the film as the lunchbox guys. Right, right. Um, yeah, so. so really, you get a copy of the script quite often. Um, we did get a bunch of photos. Um, and somebody photos. had been in and around the studio and they had actually uh, just snapped um, pictures of the, of, of the sets. So with the pictures of the sets, the original movie, that was useful. Um, <laughs> Ghostbusters on a, 1. Uh, on a VHS tape and then the script. But we did make up, if you remember the game, there's a whole scene. The, uh, and the, the first, first, the first, first level, level is going down the sewer to the river of get the, the gunk. That was a huge, huge scene in the original um, script. Mm. But what they decided, and we were told after we'd written it, um, is towards the end, it had been decided that it gave too much away and it was too many special effects to have in the opening scene. So there is a uh, thing, when James Bond was popular, you have this massive action scene right at the beginning that yeah. sets it up going, this is the style of movie. And then you slow it down and then you set the story. And that's exactly the Ghostbusters 2 model was going to go for, is this massive opening scene of ghosts and stuff going crazy. And we thought that's really cool. That makes a good level. So we had this whole level with it all going crazy down the sewers with lots of ghosts attacking. And then it would slow down and then they're trying to work out what the hell happened and the story builds up. But they decided, actually, we're going to start it much slower so it completely negated our whole first level pretty much oh, right. um, so, so the movie the movie is basically they show you at the top going down into the sewer just the top part and collecting a bit of slime you you make um loads of things um lilo and stitch it said that stitch um spins so we imagined and so we had the script and some uh storyboard type stuff and it said that Stitch spins so we thought that meant like Taz spins right. he actually right. rolled right. but the script said spins you don't have a lot of access to any of the, the stuff the first time we saw Ghostbusters 2 the movie was sitting alongside the film critic jo oh, not Jonathan Ross Barry, one before that. Barry, Barry Norman Barry, Barry Norman. Norman we were sat in the cinema at a preview showing in Leicester Square it was the coolest thing ever because yeah. they had brought in journalists to have a look at the it was a red carpet uh, thing it was it was, um, it was so cool. It was and we were sitting there yeah, thinking, yeah. oh my God, the first scene has been completely like wiped out. So you mentioned while you're making uh, Ghostbusters 2, you were also doing Champion Jet Ski Simulator and Operation Gunship. And even in the testing phase of Ghostbusters 2, that's when you started designing Fantasy World Dizzy. 
How important do you think it is for a software team to mix it up and keep doing different genres? Or do you think it's more important to stick to one and, and uh, master it? I think we'd have gone a little bit crazy if we'd have, I mean, because we made a lot of Dizzy games, but if we'd have just done a Dizzy game, a Dizzy game, a Dizzy game, we'd have just gone a little bit crazy. But also, there, apart from the fact that we wanted to break it up for our own sanity, we wanted to put a game out there and see the audience reception, which was only really like, having a look in your Sinclair reviews and see how people were viewing it and occasionally bumping into people who have played it and just saying, what did you think of it? Uh, so you wanted a little bit of time and a break away from it, find out what people liked or disliked before going back into the other one. Um, we'll do a simulator, we'll do a Dizzy, we'll do a simulator, we'll do a Dizzy. Yeah, and, and with regard to how we then feathered in the Ghostbusters 2, basically we had that almost on the side. Every time they gave us a new build, we just kind of took a few days out updated our build to get alongside theirs and then went back to what we were doing. In your game, Ghost Hunter, the hero was called Hunk Studbuckle, which uh. is just excellent. So uh, firstly, how did you come up with that magnificent name? <laughs> Do you know, I, I can't remember, but it is something that sort of sticks and it is kind of funny and I don't know. It was we... trying to come up with the most macho name you possibly could. Um, and it was like Hunk. Yeah, that sounds macho. Right, what's the surname then? Like Studbuckle. <laughs> It is funny because there's been some things with like deliberately plain boring names. In fact, like um, the Minions, it's like they're Kevin and Bob and stuff. And it's actually gone the other way where just calling them Dave and Bob and stuff is actually comical in itself. But at that point, we were thinking, you've got to go for some memorable name that doesn't actually offend anyone or is kind of like, if you just call it Sheila or, or David, people go what it would be quite funny quite funny seriously if our ghostbuster was sheila but uh especially if it was a guy um but actually this was also the era of a stallone and schwarzenegger always having to go at each other um so we were definitely kind of we want to be in that camp we want to play in their game so we th those two names were schwarzenegger, that's a bit of an odd name isn't it <laughs> it's like so anyway we just had a bit of fun yeah, I like it. And um, I think it's really because cool. so he was rescuing his brother rather than like a damsel in distress in it. I think We'd done that before in the Super Robin Hood. We'd already done the rescue made man and it seemed a bit cliche, really. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was going to say like about how he differed from other video game protagonists around that time. And is that why you chose it? Because you'd done before the damsel and so you'd That's absolutely why we did it. We sort of, sort of, look, let's be honest, it was 95% the same code. So what we're trying to do was make sure the image was as far away as possible. So if it was rescue another sort of made Marion, it's like, no, nah, that's not going to work now let's, he's got to marry he's got to rescue somebody that he's got a, so like a reason to do it and it just seemed like well family relative then why not go for a brother rather than his girlfriend um also we were trying to um make make games efficiently and the, one of the things is to sort of reuse code yeah. and the editors yeah. and on all the pipeline we'd done robin hood rescuing maid marion in a castle we were going well what could we do that looks entirely different plays differently but fundamentally underneath is the same mm. reskin reskin your game yeah, so it was like what well, at a castle right what can we do and we think haunted house okay we had guards we'll have walking skeletons and ghouls um had Robin Hood, we need some macho hero. Uh, had a made man, okay, let's have his brother. I mean, swap it was it just, out, bang just it out swap the door. it out. And, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we were trying to, our internal goal that we set ourselves is a game a month. And That's we, we did it quite game well. Game a month, nuts. We did. Um, and oh we, we stuck to it fairly well, as you can see, because we've got the Guinness Book of Records for the most number of 8-bit games ever created by anyone in the world. Uh, because we did several years of making a lot of games. Not only that, we got them to all different for formats because we would get them and onto... And they sold quite well as the well. The Amstrad, the, 
the Spectrum, the Commodore 64, and occasionally onto the Atari and a couple of other games. And some of them went to the NES, because we did 11 NES games. Oh, how the industry has changed. I, I can't get over that statistic, one game a month. That's what we sell. Uh, uh, fast, fast Food sold, um, I don't know, well over 100,000 copies. And Fast Food that was, was a game actually, jam. That was one of my favourites. So. That was actually something that on a Friday night, we were working on Grand Prix Simulator 2. We knew we couldn't ship it for Christmas, because it was actually quite a big undertaking. And it was, I don't know, late October. And we said... It's Friday afternoon. If we kind of down tools and come back to Grand Prix Simulator on Monday, and we just take the weekend, we could bang out a game which we get out for Christmas. But it's got to be quite a simple game. So what can we do that's really simple? We were always massive, massive fans and inspired deeply by... Uh, Pac-Man. Pac-Man. The old Pac-Man. If you were a Spectrum uh, gamer, there really isn't kind of that, that that game. I mean, there is on the BBC Micro. There's an absolute classic number. Um, but, but for the Spectrum, what would it be? And we were thinking, well, there's nothing obvious. Um, so we thought, well, okay, we got the weekend. Let's do it. Amazing um, game. It was just a game so, jam. And don't don't sleep. That was the general thing. Yeah. So I was going to say, we didn't do a lot of sleeping. But actually, obviously, the original Pac-Man is actually relatively simple um, with the dots um, and one level. So we thought, well, we can make multiple levels. That's not a problem. So we'll bang out a whole load of levels. And we did 30. Um, and as for the dots, we thought, well, that's so Pac-Man that really we want to take that. We don't want to do that because that is just an absolute, complete rip, unimaginative. The interesting thing was that it actually started live as being the Happy Eater game, whose uh, oh, the logo right. of Happy Eater looked exactly like a Pac-Man. Um, and actually kind of started life as oh, that. Yeah. Um, but it was, um, the licensing deal, deal fell through with Happy Eater. Codemasters actually... They had a marketing guy who said, said oh, yeah, we, can, we can do this. We can get it into every Happy Eater. So at the end of a meal, oh, look, it's only two ninety nine yeah. or something. one ninety nine, I think, actually. Um, and actually, uh, But also, they'll still stick it into the shops, the W.H. Smiths and Woolworths. But actually, we thought, oh, this is a genius idea. This is brilliant. And then, for some reason, we don't know why, Happy Eater actually pulled out of it. And we go, oh, we've got to change the main character now. Because you know what? <laughs> we'll just change it straight to Dizzy. And actually, putting Dizzy on the front cover is not going to hurt sales. You, you realise that right. years later, we did exactly the same with Burger King. Because we did the Burger King games. It sold 3.4 oh, right. million copies. But only in that. America. It was on the Xbox. Who is it the Sneak King? Yeah, so that's no what way. Was oh, Yeah, we wrote that. that was so, us. Yeah. No way. That's yeah. spooky, isn't it? And there's a... There's another world first on Burger King that people don't really know, um, and that is the fact that it's for the Xbox. Um, Which Xbox? I don't know. That's an interesting question, because when you go in, or when the Americans went in to buy their, not Happy Meal, it's the other one, uh, Value Meal, um, they would say, oh, would you like the Xbox game? Um, Now... Microsoft had sold Burger King on the idea that there were, I don't know, 50 million Xboxes in the marketplace and they were just launching the Xbox 360 and they wanted a big promotion for the Xbox 360 and they're going to do it with a partnership of Burger King. So they had this deal that they were going to launch a game to help launch a console. But if you launch a 360 console, how many people that walk in off the street to buy their Burger King say, have you got an Xbox? They'll all say, yeah, I've got the original Xbox, but it was used as a promotion to sell the Xbox 360. So we only realized this sort of as we started into it, because we assumed that it was for the new console, and our producer told us it's for the new console for the launch. Well, actually, some people assumed it was the old one. Um, And this confusion This confusion. So what we ended up doing is writing identical games, and when you've got the disc, there were dual-formatted discs that could be read by either, and it loaded the version. With two different executables. And it's the only, I think it's the only dual, bootable disc for a console that's ever been made. So 360 on one side, Xbox on the other? Uh, no, it was actually 
on the same side. Okay. It um, just identifies it. It identifies it because we were Whoa. doing it for Microsoft themselves. That's um, nice. And a lot of people didn't realize. So when you saw the TV commercials, or the, which they it were just said, TV, for the Xbox. it just says for the Xbox. And actually, most of the footage is 360 for the TV adverts. But ironically, most audiences would have played it on the Xbox. So they'd have been playing a sort of lower res version without quite so many fancy special effects and without the lighting. But you know what? We got away with it. No, nobody really That's ever soft. noticed what, what we'd done. But originally, when this whole thing was conceived, nobody actually ever really thought about which Xbox was it for? It's, it's like it's for both. It's the only dual booting discs. Madness. Um, so of all the games that you guys have worked on, all the games that you've been a part of, all the all the production crew, dev team, what is the craziest, the most outrageous, the funniest bug that oh, you've ever shug. had during the development of a game? Oh we ever had one God. that's just oh. made you laugh and gone, guys, come look at this. <laughs> oh. And then you decided to keep it, maybe. We have had the, the, the old shrinking heads, but I mean, that was done in Goldeneye as well. But we've had that occasionally where things like oh, that. Things just just like, the the head is just like ridiculously oh, tiny. And it's like, what happened there? It's like, but, but, but that's been done before. Um, I mean, it, it's quite common to sort of accidentally get um, objects so that you're shooting a gun and you realise you're shooting another person. Um, and you're thinking, did you do that because it was funny and you're going to tell the rest of the team that it's an accidental bug? But we did. We used to do um, company days. Uh, when we were about 200 people, um, there were four or five teams at any one point and everyone would love to go and see each other's games and we're going guys look can you just go and work on your own games um and once a month we'd have a show and tell on a friday afternoon where each team would show the others but it became such a big thing and people wanted to see so much that we actually once a year did a company day at the local cinema we hired the cinema and we put the games up onto the huge screen and um people would have a bloopers and i do remember the bloopers reel and we probably still have them on our, our computers somewhere and there were some hilarious things there, oh, there was pushing boots had a massive blooper reel I think with um, crazy fur and stuff like that mm. um, uh, yeah. I had a really good fur renderer on Puss in Boots but you could just like change the variables to just make him look stupid um, so going back to your youth so as uh, lads of the 80s um, you're probably well familiar with the concept of walking into somewhere and suddenly finding an arcade machine be it a chippy mm-hmm. uh, sort of a, a museum that yep. sort of thing let's say you fellas not a museum, not a museum definitely not well, actually, that's not strictly true because actually, the first time we saw Battlezone was at Yeovil Air Museum. Actually. Oh yeah, actually, yeah, okay, but not. Yeah. But there is now a video national video game museum in Sheffield. Right, but, anyway, but let's that's say a whole let's thing. say you guys got fed up with video games. You open a chippy tomorrow. What arcade cab are you going to put in that chippy? Gauntlet. Gauntlet was awesome. This is a tiny little guide, but there are so many like really good classic games uh, like Defender and um, Battlezone and things. Asteroids. Absolutely wonderful. Um, it was super awesome that you guys just like found what you loved at such a, such a young age and just pursued it. And we get a lot of people writing into us asking for advice on how to get into the games industry and stuff. Do you have any advice to people wondering about that? We time in universities. That's what we <laughs> I was going to say, we go into, yeah, we've done so many we've university just, we talks. we just come from Bristol. We have, actually. Um, so, yes, we have an awful lot of advice. Um, how to bring that down to sort of a soundbite. Um, at least now... There are proper good careers if you can learn those skills, uh, not just in making games, but actually just being IT literate. There is a million jobs in kind of coding and UI design and graphic design and, and everything. So the good news is that actually if you learn these uh, skills um, while sort of a school student or even college age student, there are great careers um, using those skills. 
which is way different to when we were doing it because everybody told us to sort of give it up but this is never we couldn't happen. even find a book and now you've got the internet and you've got tutorials so people can just download unity unreal if you're flipping article but um certainly you can make stuff and you can play easy. with the mod games like, and actually you were talking about dreams earlier andrew i, know, I mean it's, it's actually using all the yeah using all the tools that are out there and then going and finding the information on on the internet um through youtube videos and stuff there is so much out there to encourage you and help you to learn that you absolutely should. Um, but but then you've got to sort of work out how do you then get into the industry and fight your way through. To be fair, there are a lot of college courses and a lot of university courses that are actually, they're getting very, very good. I mean, obviously, whenever whenever you're choosing a university, sort of find out who the lecturers are and actually how many people are getting employed into the games industry from the courses. That's the biggest measure. Um, but there are great courses out there. Um, and so that is going to be a good route. Um, if you can put... Whenever you um, somebody applies to a games company, you will always be judged by your portfolio. So if you're a coder, what what is the demo that you've actually produced in code and how did you do the it? Art. And art is the same. What I'd actually say is that make sure you've got a really good portfolio. Whether you've gone via university, college, or you're just basically straight from school, it's all about the portfolio. Create a really great portfolio, but also focus your portfolio to actually down a specific a specific line um i was talking to a student uh, recently looking at their portfolio and it was an art uh, student and they'd made a, a sort of a, a really serious mistake but it's a good good one to illustrate they'd actually done a demo uh, art um, piece which was a video but it was halfway between a candy land um nice and uh, fluffy and everything and a gothic horror and they the said, day night twist. Yeah. And they sort of said, yeah, it's like a day night twist and everything. And I said, here's an issue with this um, that I've got is that you've basically spread yourself too thin, but you have absolutely zero focus. So what portfolio piece do you send to the employer that does nice fluffy cartoon games? They have apps that they might like your Candyland piece, but they have absolutely zero interest. In fact, it turns them off that you can do gothic horror because they're now not sure where your mind is and where your sort of aspirations lie. Are you really the person that wants to do gothic horror? Only you did a bit of Candyland and we like you for that. Or uh, do you want to do gothic horror? And you send your demo piece to a company that is doing those kind of games and they're going, well, where's your head at? Maybe you want to do the candy kind of stuff first. So they, if you want to do the two separate pieces, do them completely separate and send the relevant pieces to the relevant company. But actually, in your own mind, where do you want to work? Oh, I only want to work on the Candyland type stuff. That's the kind of company I want to work for. So why did you even produce the other piece of work? It is not useful for the, your career. So produce the kind of pieces that are useful for where you want to be and the kind of companies you want to apply to. If you want to apply to companies that do family-friendly games, then your portfolio pieces should should be centred around that. If you want to apply to a company like Codemasters that does racing games and only racing games, then your portfolio should be some racing um, demos or artwork or something. My, my son wanted to uh, go into video games. Uh, okay, so he has a little bit of steering from his dad, um, but I didn't spend loads of time sort of teaching him how to program. Uh, well, partly because he wanted to use Unity, mate, and you haven't. I haven't used Unity, so, but he kind of like, well, I want to do stuff, and 
and he's like, well, there's a hell of a lot of tutorials. And I just pointed at him going, just work through the tutorials. If you can understand the tutorials, you'll kind of get there. So he did that and he was writing nice little demos and things. And I said, well, you've got to do something with it. You've got to have focus. There was a competition, the BAFTA Young Game Design Competition. And it's like, well, enter that and see how you go. You know, we, we made our start by winning a competition when we were at school, um, National Game Design Competition um, on the Saturday show in 1983. Um, so maybe, maybe you could do it. And he won first prize in the BAFTA Young Game Design. It's like brilliant, fantastic. That um, opened a few doors. And that opened some doors because he got, it was funny actually, because he ha had a chance to do work experience at school. So I said, right, well, most people are expecting you to just apply to one, but why don't you, as we say to anyone, send your CV to lots of places. I said, send the fact that you just won a BAFTA to lots of companies. So he sent it to Ardman, Framestore, and Rebellion. Um, well, he was accepted by all those three um, for doing, actually, yeah, and he came along to, for our, our company to work for a week as well. Um, but he got accepted for all of them for work experience. But in your work experience, you only had the May half term to do work experience. And I said, but your school has told you that, but actually it doesn't matter. You've got summer holidays and people like Framestore, they don't necessarily need to know that. You've asked for a week's work experience, ask for it for July because you're on holiday. Um, and he goes, oh, it's a lot of work though. I'm supposed to be on holiday. And I was like, oh, you do you want to work for Framestore? <laughs> and he absolutely loved it. because, like, So he worked in a little interactive division, but he got to see them working on uh, Game of Thrones at that point. He went down to Bristol uh, Ardman and was working on an interactive Sean the Sheep demo and, and things like that. He absolutely loved it and he decided not to go to university and because he got a job and i just said because there was this whole debate of do you go and i said you know what you should do this is, is history with your so. demos go and apply to jobs and if you get a job in the games industry then you don't go to university and if you don't get a job you go to university um which was part, kind of the challenge that our dad gave to us when we were young um and i mean we could have given him a job but that doesn't work it didn't work really for us because it looked weird so i just said no no just go and apply so sort of other companies. In fact, it was a negative because the people who offered him a job then called you in going, oh, is, there gonna, is he a little spy is for you? Is he a spy? And it's like, no. I oh, for, I just, oh, right. They said, why don't right. you employ yeah. If you think, he, if your son is quite good, why don't you employ him? And I was like, I want him to stand on his own two feet and you employ him on the merit. I said, you interview him and you decide whether he's good enough. Anyway, he got in. And brilliant. brilliant that, that, that's great advice. It's a everyone. brilliant industry. So on top of everything, focus, build your portfolio and have a little hustle. I was going to say, a little hustle. Uh, absolutely. And, and the other thing we tell students is actually apply to lots of places. So we quite often meet a lot of students who go, I just want to work at Rockstar. It's like, so don't just apply to Rockstar. By all means, apply to Rockstar. Absolutely. But apply to loads of places. Nobody counts it against you that you've applied to lots of places. They don't say, oh, if you've applied to more places, then sorry, you're not interested in us. One, they never ask. Two, you're never going to tell them. But actually, apply as many places as possible because what have you got to lose, really? And the thing is, that quite often you can be quite surprised. Well, first of all, you gain experience from every time that you go to an interview. You will gain loads of experience and loads of insight but also you will get better at doing it so that when the ones are really, really important, so the Rockstar interview or whatever, you've already had several dress rehearsals. But also if the Rockstar turned you down, but actually you've, uh, you've actually discovered that there's some other companies out there that actually really like you and you really like them. We had quite a few people who turned up at Blitz Games thinking, you just make Barbie, I don't really want to work on Barbie. When they actually came to interview, they walked through the door and go, you're working on Reservoir Dogs. And we go, <laughs> yeah, but we can't tell the world. And actually the vacancy that we're talking about is for Reservoir Dogs. And they go, 
So well, that, I'd work on that. We but, can surprise people. Like so, that. Uh, but actually, that happens in most cases that you don't really know what's behind the doors um, until you actually go in. So, so you should try to go in. But also, the other thing is that people kind of think that it's really, really cool to work on the title that you've heard of. Not necessarily. The most important thing is actually the sort of the lifestyle that you lead. Is it a nice place you want to work? Is it with people you want to work with? Is it something that you will gain benefit from yourself? One of the problems of working on these teams with a thousand, two thousand plus people is that actually you become such a small part of that that you have no influence on the overall game. You may get the title of Red Dead Redemption on your CV and that might look cool to others. But deep down in your heart, you know, I modeled the rocks. Yeah, I was just going like to say, yeah, nobody, yeah. nobody cares I mean, kind of thing. Whereas actually, if you go into a medium-sized company or a small company, medium-sized company, there's loads of people around you that are experts um, who can actually help you in lots of different fields. So if you're an artist, you won't necessarily have to focus right down on, I, I'm only allowed to animate a certain number of characters and only do a certain number of things. The smaller the company you go, the more you're expected to do. Oh, can you design the characters as well? Oh, can you model the characters? Can you texture the characters? Can you do the rigging? Can you do the animation? Whereas the bigger the company you go, the the less you're going to learn, the less you can kind of um, sort of drive your own personal learning and your own career and your own skills forward. If you go too small, right down to an indie, and you turn up, they you go. Learn, well, there's no one to learn from. There, there's nobody to learn from. There's no uh, experts yeah, already right. there. Yeah, um, yeah. So they might have one other artist or something, but that's kind of the only guy you can learn from. And if he was great at texturing, but not so good at modeling, he's expecting you to lead on the modeling. And it's like, well, who am I learning from? So actually, quite often we sort of say it's mid-size. the it's the mid-sized companies that are best for your careers, and actually, it's the mid-sized companies that are actually the easier ones to get into. And they're quite often doing something a bit novel, a bit interesting, and not doing the bleeding obvious large sequels, um, and not doing the things that are too small to be too obscure that you won't learn from. Amazing advice. Thank you very much. I think that is a beautiful, quite poetic way to end uh, your your appearance on this podcast. Thank I'm you stunned. very much, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely stunned. <laughs> Thank Thanks so much for coming to talk to us. And yeah, we've learned loads and got yeah, some really cool advice and some cool stories for behind the scenes for everyone. So thanks for that. On behalf of everyone at Arc Digital and Mike and Jem, thank you so much for making this appearance. It's been an absolute joy to have you in. Oh, brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you. Cheers. So we've done quite a few episodes, quite a few seasons now of the Arc Digital podcast. I even listened to one of them. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Mike. And my mind continually gets blown by the knowledge and the insight that uh, all the team members c- can add to this this amazing podcast. But I've just hit a new level. That was pretty rad. It was beyond rad. Like having those two guys on, Andrew and Philip, was utterly, utterly brilliant. I'm going to take their mugs. I'm never going to wash them. I'm going to put them on a <laughs> shelf, mate, I'm gonna, like, on, the, on the trophy shelf at home. We might give one away in a social media competition. <laughs> so make sure to follow socials. Uh, I love how Mike was very, very... Like wanted to kind of keep that that sentimental thing. Jim's like, no, I'm marketing. Jim makes the rules. It's where, <laughs> where do you go from that? Like those guys were magnificent. Um, There's to... nothing you can say, Matt. Nothing we lose. Let's just go home. I'm off. <laughs> really? He's done. Bye, Mike. He's done. Thanks, Mike. It's good to see you. Yeah, see you tomorrow. <laughs> Live Foley. Live Foley. Um, Jim, what do you have to say to kind of wrap that up? Like that, I mean, we've all got different insight into episodes and, and, and different kind of expertise, different disciplines. We all come from different gaming walks of life, right? So f- being being someone who's a little bit older, um, there's a lot there that kind of uh, resonated with me. But as someone who's a bit more fresher face than me, I, wh- where do you come from with all that new intel? 
Yeah, it was really cool and really inspiring to hear about people just um, following their passions from a young age yeah. and um, following, seeing it through and like that shaped their whole lives. And that's really cool. And hopefully inspiration for any of our viewers, because we do get people writing in, like, how do we get into games? Um, and that, that showed you, make a game, have a try. Like, you never know where it could lead you. And it could lead to the very best uh, outcome, which is that you have your own game studio and then do consultancy. And like, yeah, it's really awesome. I think that's it. Like, you can take a hell of a lot from the from the conversation that we just had with um, Andrew and Philip. But the story itself, like the overarching story of that, two 15-year-old brothers set out on this this mission. Some 30 plus years later, they've they've had such a huge impact on an in industry that's still so very young as well. Pretty good. So. Don't forget, as I've already mentioned, but I'll mention it again. Follow us on socials. Um, make sure you know you can listen to the rest of the podcast episodes. We're sharing them on there um, and subscribing it. Just check out what we're up to on Twitter. We're always posting interesting things that we're doing. Um, always happy to chat. I'll drop into the Discord as well. Always love to talk with you guys. How it goes. <laughs>